Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli, and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. Today I'm joined by Stephen Gilmore. Up until April 2018, Stephen was the Chief Investment Strategist for the Future Fund. That's Australia's $140 odd billion sovereign wealth fund. Over the last 10 years, the fund has delivered an annualized return of 8.5% beating its benchmark target of 6.7%. We're going to cover a lot of interesting topics today, including the challenges of creating and leading a single multi-asset investment team, how scale affects investment strategy, and some very interesting war stories about working in countries uh, in the middle of a civil war and some of the more famous uh, financial debacles that have happened in the last 20 years or so. Stephen has had a long and varied career, including stints with the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, Chase Manhattan Bank, working with the IMF in some far-fung places, with Morgan Stanley and AIG during the global financial crisis. I can't wait to chat with Stephen about this. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Stephen to the podcast. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure. So we usually start by asking our guests a little bit about their background and how they ended up in finance and investing. What's your story? Well, I started out studying economics and uh, at the end of my degree, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, take up uh, an assistant lecturing role in finance um, at Otago University in New Zealand. Uh, They took a bit of a risk. They wanted an economist and I went there. So I got uh, dropped in it that way, Uh, which was great because... uh, you know, they uh, didn't really expect me to know a lot about finance, uh, I learned, and I had the privilege of um, spending some time with one of the visiting professors, Simon Beninga, who ended up being, um, I guess, the author of one of the main texts for financial modeling. Uh, so that was, that was a privilege and a pleasure. Okay, very interesting. So why did you decide to move on to working in markets rather than a career in academia? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question because... Uh, it was comfortable, it was uh, quite enjoyable, but it wasn't really that challenging. Uh, in New Zealand, you're a long way away from everywhere. And if you want to proceed, you really have to go to places like the States to, to do uh, you know, doctoral work and so on. And I just really wasn't up for that. Um, instead, uh, moved across to the Reserve Bank. And that was a fascinating time because New Zealand was uh, going through a process of uh, rapid economic reform. The currency had been floated, uh, capital controls had been lifted, a lot of economic reform. So it was an exciting time. And uh, I joined the Reserve Bank and we got to 
basically um, think about things from first principles. It, it was quite quite exciting uh, intellectually. So you mentioned the influence of working with Simon uh, Meninga at the University there of Otago. Were there any other people that stood out in the early days as, as mentors and key influences? Well, I think I'd have to mention Lowell McLean, who was a professor at Otago. He took the risk. He brought in an economist into uh, accounting and finance, so uh, really much, very much appreciated that. Reserve Bank um, had a lot of interesting um, thinkers, um, a lot of very young people who were basically let loose uh, just to do stuff. And I think one I would highlight would be Mark Swinburne, who was extremely good on the, the economics and policy side. And I also had the um, pleasure of working with him at the IMF as well. Uh, so he was a great thinker, but sadly passed away all too soon. Okay, that's that's sad. So you've, you've had this great experience at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. How did you make your way from there to the IMF? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people in New Zealand... Uh, end up uh, traveling. Uh, they do their OE, their overseas experience. I took a year's leave of absence from the Reserve Bank uh, back in uh, the late 80s, and uh, I never ended up going back. So uh, I bought a one-way ticket uh, to Asia, uh, made my way to, to London, picked up a job with uh, Chase Manhattan. And again, they took a risk. They, uh, uh, they brought me in uh, and dropped me in into a derivative structuring role. I hadn't really done much of that. Um, so I appreciate uh, particularly people like Sykes Welford uh, who, who took that risk uh, and uh, ended up uh, eventually moving into a dealing room, uh, doing fixed income structuring, then moving across to FX options for a while. That was, uh, that was an experience. Okay, so now you've, you've got more of a capital markets experience under your belt, actually working with an investment bank. So I see from your CV, you then ended up in Washington with the IMF. Uh, yes, it's a long story. I actually I wanted to get to Paris for personal reasons, um, but ended up chatting to someone in Washington. They said, come and work for us. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union has, uh, has broken up. We need people. It's really interesting. You know, if things go well, you may be working on former Soviet countries in a year. Um, and uh, it sounded, again, quite interesting to me. So I, so I uh, applied. Uh, I got accepted. I joined. And within a month, I was in Minsk, uh, so working in Belarus, um, and again, fascinating times. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like they overestimated when they said within 12 months, because you were there within one. Oh, it was hectic. Um, the IMF had created a new department. Uh, there were 15 new countries from one. Uh, for the most part, they didn't have the, the infrastructure. They had to develop new institutions, you know, central banks, finance ministries, which had all been branches of, of the center before. Uh, the way of thinking about things was very different, uh, weren't experienced in, in market economy. Uh, so it was almost all hands on deck. And we were traveling uh, a lot uh, to these places. And uh, it, it was fascinating to think about some of the contrasts. I, I still remember being in the central bank, uh, National Bank of Belarus, when someone plucked up the courage to just ask a question. They said, we've heard that in the West, bankers get paid more than factory workers. Is that, is that true? <laughs> It was just so different. Okay. So you've been at the IMF for one month. You haven't even finished your probation, I, I presume. You're now in Belarus. What were you doing there? Institution building. So we were working with the central bank, um, basically helping them to, uh, to set up their legislative framework. We would be working on uh, FX reserve management, 
monetary policy implementation, uh, accounting, the whole range of things that, that central banks might want to do when, when they start up. Okay, so it sounds like you started from a blank sheet of paper. Almost, almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think having been at the Reserve Bank helped a lot because it was a small organisation, so you got exposure to, to a lot of the different areas. And in terms of the people you were working with over there, what things stood out about, you mentioned they were surprised at the salaries that bankers earned. Were there any other things that stood out to you in terms of how different their knowledge and where they were at was compared to countries in the Western world? So? Um, I would say that banking was perceived differently. It was really more an accounting function. And uh, most of the, um, the good people within the banks were actually women. Often they didn't hold the very top positions, but uh, it was quite uh, female-dominated. It had a different, um, I guess, perception. So it wasn't really about being um, creative, innovative. It was more about being technocratic. And there were some very good people um, in, in that field. So you've, you're now in Belarus. And tell us how you get from Belarus to Tajikistan and what it was like there and the circumstances at the time. Okay. Uh, most of the time I was at the IMF, I was working on countries of the, the former Soviet Union. And that meant working in places like Belarus, uh, Russia, Georgia, Turkmenistan, and a few others. As time progressed, uh, I moved across to, um, to a country desk. I worked on Armenia, and I was uh, closely involved with the, the Armenian program with the IMF. Uh, but the IMF encouraged people to take on resident representative roles. So they actually spend some time in in the country, and that was also something that sounded quite appealing to me. Uh, so I let them know that I would be interested in taking up a, a role if one became available. Uh, a little while later, the person who oversaw um, the, the program mentioned to me that, oh, there might be a role in Tajikistan. And of course, I didn't know much about Tajikistan, so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll chat to some people who've been there. And so I talked to... Could some, you find any? I could. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there were some people in the IMF who'd been there, but also some people at the World Bank. And everyone spoke very highly of the place, of the people. Uh, and uh, I went back and uh, let people at the IMF know that um, I would be interested. Uh, the only requirement they gave me was that I find someone to take over the Armenian role, and, uh, and I did that. Okay. So you're, you're in Tajikistan. Tell us what it was like. Fascinating. Uh, it's actually a wonderful country, beautiful uh, scenically. 93% of the country is covered in mountains, so rivers. Uh, as I say, naturally beautiful, quite hard to get to, or it was then. Uh, fascinating culture. Um, revere um, poets, uh, interesting music. You know, the main streets in the capital are named after poets. Um, of course, when I went there, uh, it was also quite um, challenging because the Civil War was uh, ongoing. Uh, something like 100,000 people may have been killed during that, that war. And just to give you an idea of uh, how bleak it was, there were close to a million refugees from Tajikistan in the relative safe haven of northern Afghanistan. That, uh, I think that says something if, if Afghanistan is, is a safer place to be. So how did the, the civil war impact your life while you were living there and, and your work with the IMF? Did you have to take precautions? It may sound a little bit ironic, but, I, but I'd lived in Washington, and in the 90s, there were some parts of Washington which were quite dicey, and there were times when I actually felt safer in Dushanbe than I might have in Washington. It, it felt more predictable, and that probably wasn't the case. I was probably naive, but uh, it just felt a little bit more manageable. 
What it did do, though, was um, mean that you had to focus quite a lot on the real politic. Um, there were just certain things that policymakers couldn't do. They didn't have control over, you know, sways of the country. Defence was 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 really important. Uh, there were times when you would be subject to um, you know, threats. Uh, at one point, uh, one of the warlords surrounded the central bank where I had my office. Uh, had about fifty people came in and made a withdrawal. Um, <laughs> that was a little bit <laughs> daunting. Uh, there were things like bomb blasts and the like. But for the most part, um, we just got on with life. Well, that, that's something that we're unlikely to hear about at the current Royal Commission. <laughs> people turn up and uh, warlords summarily demand their savings from the central bank, but, uh, or probably not even their savings. So it sounds like an interesting um, interesting time. And, and what sort of work were you doing there? Was it more of the same, helping them build institutions from the ground up? It was a combination. Um, before I went to to, to Dushan and Tajikistan, uh, my boss at the, the IMF had said, look, you're there to work with the people. You're not there to be part of the diplomatic community. And I, I took that to heart. So I was really there to, to help with the institution building, um, which could be helping develop the implementation of monetary policy uh, at the central bank. Uh, I was also uh, a conduit or a liaison between the IMF and uh, the authorities in, in Dushanbe. Uh, so a lot of the focus was on um, implementing a, a financial program uh, with the IMF. One of the biggest challenges that the, the Tajiks had faced at the time was how to feed the population. Of course, there's a war going on, a lot of you know, displaced people, a lot of emphasis on um, providing low-cost bread. So bread was subsidized which meant that um, the authorities would take uh, resources from the cotton and aluminium sectors. They would use that, that money to, to buy uh, grain offshore. They'd bring it in. They would bake all this, this bread, cheap bread, which would be rash, rationed, low quality. And, of course, it disrupted the, um, the budget. It disrupted the cotton sector, the aluminium sector, and it also depressed prices for potential wheat growers uh, in, in Tajikistan. And uh, one of the, the things that um, the IMF typically recommends is you know, sort the budget out uh, and get rid of these subsidies. And we pushed very strongly to have the authorities remove subsidies for bread. And, of course, they were very anxious about that because in some countries that leads to, you know, to riots and uh, you know, not surprisingly. Um, but the authorities grasped the task. Uh, they, they, they did do that. Um, the timing um, was such that um, food aid came in from the European Union, the US, helped smooth the transition. And the whole process went incredibly smoothly. Um, prices were liberalized, compensation was paid to the poorest, um, because prices for wheat rose, uh, domestic production soared. And the authorities saw that um, you know, the market can work. Uh, it, was a, it was a huge lesson in terms of uh, the reform process, and uh, it set the scene for, for future changes to come. Uh, and, and future changes had to occur. I mean, inflation was 2,000% at the time. That was brought down to around 40% the following year through uh, an exchange rate-based uh, stabilization program. Okay. So how do you create financial markets in an environment like that? <laughs> um, the the people there were quite entrepreneurial. So... Um, Creating markets wasn't that difficult. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, currency trading went on, uh, black market trading. Uh, even during the Soviet days, I, I met quite a few people uh, who had 
traded actively, Tajiks who had traded actively, uh, they'd managed to source certain things in, in, in Russia and they would be bringing them back and they would be shipping off uh, various fruits from, from Tajikistan. So the trading mentality was always there. It was really more about the, um, the infrastructure. So after your time uh, with the IMF, you moved on to Morgan Stanley. And uh, we were talking offline about some of the things you did there with uh, the Russian Republic <laughs> about the time that it defaulted on its bonds. Tell us about that story. Well, I, I think I put this down to you know, the lessons I've learned through time. And uh, that was probably uh, the second one. I think you know, going back, um, you tend to think of you know, the market crises that, that, that you've experienced. And, and for me, you know, the very first one was back in you know, 1987 when the, the stock market dropped a lot. I was at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. I was actually at a course uh, in Baal, the BIS, for bank supervisors. And uh, it was uh, intriguing just to see you know, the degree of activity that was occurring at that time as the market was plunging. Of course, I was quite interested in my own little portfolio back in New Zealand, uh, high beta stocks, couldn't get any information, it got vaporized. So that was quite a, quite a lesson in terms of not being able to, to get the information and also a lesson on you know, what happens when, when you see these periods of market turmoil. But then coming to, um, to Morgan Stanley, I went in as a uh, European time zone emerging market strategist. Uh, so it was my job to, to think about Russia. Uh, and so I was spending quite a bit of time looking at, um, I guess, the you know, domestic and external macro position, trying to work out whether the currency would depreciate, whether it would be a default or so, or, or what, what would happen. And of course, I got it wrong. Um, I, I didn't anticipate that combination of um, events that occurred. And it's also quite humbling when you've written stuff, you know, you're making a fairly you know, bold call and, and you get it wrong. You, you, you're held to account in terms of... Uh, I guess the perceptions and, and 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 your own call, and lots of lessons you know came from that. Um, one of them was that we probably had enough information in the organisation to be much um, better in, in in making that call. So sharing the information, uh, I think, was 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 quite important. Uh, I think also there were certain signs you know that that occurred in um, in Russia, for instance, when the savings bank stopped. Purchasing, uh, you know, domestic um, debt, you should really have known that that the time was up. So that that I think was quite quite um, quite uh, informative for me. I think beyond that, there were there were other things, and that was you know, what are the consequences of this, uh, and and it went well beyond Russia. So of course, um, the the knock on effects were quite large. Um, one that gets highlighted, I guess, is LTCM. When you know, positions get stopped out, you know, there can be chain reactions. So it was quite important to think about what else can happen. Um, and that was really thinking about um, you know, people's positioning, risk management, and what the, uh, the implications of, of certain events would be. Don't just think about the, uh, the initial event, think about the implications of, of, of that event. So it sounds like you learnt two important lessons there. One was the the need to communicate and integrate within the organisation because, as you pointed out, a lot of the information that you needed to get the call right probably resided in the organisation already. And the second lesson that you highlight there was 
the need to think beyond the actual event itself and and think about the second and third order consequences. How have those two lessons changed the way you invest? Well, I think um, it's almost self-explanatory. Uh, the process needs to be collaborative. You don't know who's going to have you know, the the right information, who's going to be asking the right question, but be open to uh, to to that input. And the same goes for thinking about the consequences. Um, you know, if it's um, you know logical, uh, linear, someone's probably thought of it. Uh, it's much more interesting to think about those things that are more lateral. You know, to step back and, and think big picture. What does this mean? Do you think investment organisations generally do that sort of thinking well or poorly? I think they probably do it quite poorly. Uh, often they tend to be siloed and they tend to be uh, focusing on narrow rather than the big picture. Okay. We're going to pick up on some of these themes a little later on when we talk about integrated whole of portfolio approaches to, uh, to managing money. So you've moved on now from Morgan Stanley to AIG and you're in London as a strategist with the financial products team. And for our listeners that don't know, this team is the team that was at the epicenter of the derivatives fiasco that almost brought AIG down if it wasn't for the US government bailing them out. So tell us about what it was like to work at AIG at the time when all of this was happening. Well, I, I worked for, for, for Bonk AIG, which was the... Um uh, I guess the European arm of AIG Financial Products. And AIG Financial Products had a very interesting background. It was started by people who'd come from Drexel and Bill Labs, very um, intellectual type of organization, quite small. Uh, it had been highly profitable uh, through time. Uh, so it was quite cerebral. Uh, and the, the London um, team, around 100 people, well, actually probably fewer than that when I joined, um, was very collaborative. Um, it was actually a, a great little environment to work in. The, the person who ran it um, became quite infamous, and that was Joe Cassano. Um, I had a lot of time for Joe. Uh, very smart guy, um, quite a moral guy, um, but he was quite volatile. Uh, so he, he could be really up or he could be really down, and his, um, uh, I guess, mood affected things. But what he did do was... Um, force a great deal of collaboration. Uh, so if there was a business imperative, um, people worked together and they worked together, uh, I think, very, very effectively. Uh, so it was actually um, a good you know, place to be in terms of uh, the culture. Of course, you know, looking back on it, you can point to all the, um, all the deficiencies uh, and you know, lots of lessons uh, arose from, from, from the experience there. And... Uh, you know, probably the first thing that stands out to me uh, relates to you know leadership. You know, I thought uh, I thought a lot of Joe, um, uh, but the reality is that no matter how good someone is, you know they can make mistakes, and some of those um, you know mistakes lead to unintended consequences again. If you think about AIG as a whole, you know it had been um, made successful by by Hank Greenberg. And he um, was ousted in 2005 as part of Elliot Spitzer's efforts. And I think that if, if Hank had remained in charge of AIG, there would not have been a need for a bailout because he was much more focused on the risk side of things. Um, so, you know, that's, I guess, my 
assumption. I could be wrong, but uh, I have this feeling that uh, if those changes hadn't occurred at the top, then AIG wouldn't have been in a position to um, have had so much risk and to have needed uh, that that particular um, bailout. I think also um, there are you know lessons with respect to liquidity, and it's kind of ironic. Um, you know, the one thing that, that Joe was adamant about was that he didn't want to write liquidity puts. So he didn't want to be a liquidity provider for the rest of the market. But of course, that's actually what happened in the end. AIGFP uh, had it written a lot of um, super senior uh, CDS protection and ultimately faced margin calls on that protection that had been written. But the sequence for that process was was fascinating because... When AIG was AAA, um, I don't believe that um, it, it was vulnerable to uh, having to post collateral. But as AIG got downgraded, um, some of those potential collateral calls got triggered. And of course, as the underlying instruments fell in value, um, then you know margin calls could be made. And it was more complex, of course, because a lot of the valuations for these instruments were uh, essentially, you know, mark to model rather than mark to market. Uh, so you can see this whole process of um, a downward spiral as as things um, fell in value, more margin calls occurred, and it just became self fulfilling. I was I couldn't help but think while you were discussing that that the environment at AIG, what it must have looked like when they realised that the game was up, that. There was a lot more risk there than they thought was there. Was it something like the seven stages of grief? Did they go through shock, denial, pain, guilt, anger, bargaining, depression, reconstruction, acceptance, and hope? Was it that sort of a, a roller coaster of emotion? Or? <laughs> I don't think it was. Um, I think back in 2005, um, there was a recognition that. Um, there was perhaps more risk on than you know, may have been prudent. And at that point, uh, an effort was taken to hedge some of that risk. And, of course, um, what happened, the hedge was put on, a small hedge was put on, and the market kept rallying, so the hedge lost money. I think one of the, you know, the fascinating things here about uh, thinking about that is that you've got to think about the incentive structure. You know, if uh, you know AIGFP had been in a position to fully hedge all of its uh, exposure, it just wouldn't have generated the revenue, and it would have lost its people. Uh, so the business would have been under undermined. And and I think quite a lot about those incentive structures because, on the one hand, you had um, people whose whose compensation was, in large part, for some people, you know, deferred. So. It had quite a, uh, a model incentive structure, whereby you know people were aligned to um, the well-being of the business. Yet even with that, uh, mistakes can be made, and even with that, people could still be incentivized to 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 keep the risk on. Uh, so in this particular case, you know there was the recognition that there was risk. Um, there was an attempt to do something, but very small, uh, and then it was a case of really saying, okay. Um, you know, there's risk on, um, but we have sufficient liquidity, and then monitoring that liquidity very closely. But of course, uh, you know, the situation can change, and uh, you know, the repo market uh, froze up, uh, so funding became very, very difficult. 
and then in the end, no AIG required a, a bailout. Uh, interestingly enough, um, that bailout, which was quite penal, uh, ended up making quite a bit of money for the U.S. government, for the Fed and the Treasury. I think they benefited to the tune of twenty odd billion dollars, which I guess really highlights um, the point that it was you know, more likely a liquidity problem than a solvency problem. And of course, it wasn't just AIGFP; it was also the uh, uh, the investment arm, which had uh, been involved in securities lending. Uh, so there were two main contributors to the the stresses that that AIG faced. I think there's some very important lessons in in your comments, uh, particularly around the the role that the incentive structures played. That they actually, even though they were aligned with the longer term performance of the business, they made it hard to manage risk by hedging, because they uh, they meant people weren't getting paid, and then you have the issues of staff leaving potentially, and and, and other things related to that. And also your points around the impact of of liquidity on on markets that sometimes your positioning may not be wrong and it sounds like in the fullness of time AIG's positioning proved out to the benefit of the government that bailed them out it's just that they couldn't last because of the amount of leverage they had on the books. I think there are lots of lessons and I still think about um, the lessons. Um, I think that I would conclude that the thing was wrong because it it couldn't last. Mm. I think there was also another lesson there in terms of um, in terms of failing. You, you don't want to be the first or second organisation. Uh, it became easier for late for others later when the, the issue was more systemic. Um, best of course of is to not get into that position of vulnerability if you can if you can avoid it. That, that reminds me of uh, Roger Lowenstein's book on the crisis where he. He, he writes in great detail that uh, all of the key players thought that uh, Lehman Brothers going under wouldn't be as big a problem as it was and that it might actually scare the other players straight. And uh, when they realised that they'd miscalculated, as, as you were alluding to, they were much more prepared to bail people out um, significantly and, and quickly uh, when they realised that this was getting out of hand. It was interesting, you know, when I first started with the Reserve Bank in New Zealand, my, my role was to look at um, capital adequacy and banking supervision. And the, the, the joke was always that, well, really, you wanted, uh, if there was to be a failure, you, a bank failure, you wanted it to be a small bank, uh, which didn't have any systemic issues, but had a demonstration effect and improved um, risk management elsewhere. But of course, it's very hard to, to judge what's small, uh, because there can be uh, that that contagion. It was also um, uh, quite intriguing just to, to think about how nasty the, the environment became. Because again, thinking about incentive structures, uh, what um, AIGFP did was uh, arrange a whole lot of retention agreements with staff to make sure that people didn't leave. Uh, this is from you know, 2000 and early 2008. They wanted to make sure that the business could still function and people had uh, deferred payments. And of course, after AIG was bailed out by the government, these uh, arrangements became highly controversial and it led to um, death threats uh, to, really? to some of my, my colleagues. Uh, it, it also meant that some people had to go into hiding. Uh, they took people out of their kids out of schools. Uh, so it was quite a, you know, I guess, a reminder about you know, social license and... Uh, 
uh, I guess the um, the public implications of, of of some of the events that that, that were occurring. Okay, that's I, I didn't realize it went that far for, for oh. the families of some of the people. Oh, involved. Yes, um, some people organize coach tours of uh, properties in uh, Connecticut, where you can go and visit um, some AI GFP staff members' houses. I'm interested to get your thoughts on the role of risk modeling at the time, because a lot of been has been said since the crisis of a, on uh, over reliance on things like value at risk modeling and uh, overconfidence based off sophisticated quantitative techniques. Do you think that played a role in what happened at AIG? Uh, it was a it was a special time. Um, this was a period where people were constructing all sorts of. Um, you know, securitized instruments, credit instruments, uh, the rating agencies were heavily involved. Um, so there's a lot of focus on modeling and historic relationships and historic, uh, you know, outcomes. And when that happens, people uh, can be a bit myopic, I think. Uh, they focus on, okay, the history, they focus on the micro, and sometimes they don't necessarily focus on the, the big picture. And I think when it comes to, you know, things like residential mortgages and subprime and incentives, that was the case. It's a little bit different when you're looking at uh, corporate credit. Um, so absolutely, I think people spend too much time you know, thinking about uh, the models and maybe not exercising as much judgment. Uh, likewise, um, at the time, um, these credit spreads were, were being driven down to incredibly low levels. Uh, super senior credit um, exposures you know, were trading at very, very, very low spreads. Uh, and even if it was hard to to think about you know possible outcomes where there would be defaults, you can't say that there's no chance of there being defaults. So it just looked you know bubble-like, but the machine kept on churning these things out. It's very thought-provoking to hear you speak about the importance of actually thinking about the risks and not over-relying on the model, because it sounds like from what you're saying, the model can only take you so far. And after that, you've got to be quite thoughtful about the risks that you manage. Absolutely. But there's also the technicality related to it as well. Uh, you know, a lot of these uh, arrangements had lots and lots of documentation. And you know, it's not always clear that people have gone through all that documentation and uh, you know, know all the detail of it. And you know, these transactions are being done at uh, a fairly rapid pace. Uh, so it becomes machine-like. Um, but sometimes it's just very helpful to step back to think about does this make sense okay so you've you've gone from political drama war financial markets drama and now you're at the future fund in 2009 how did you come to join the future fund and what was it like because that was very early on in its history well um obviously with 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 what happened with aigfp uh, it went into wind down so I, of course, needed to find something else uh, to do. Uh, an opportunity arose at the Future Fund. I think they viewed me as an opportunistic hire. Uh, and uh, I'll be forever grateful to, you know, to, to Paul Costello and Dave Neal, Tony Day and Craig Thorburn, who all um, you know, took the risk, um, got me in. And for me, you know, having come through the AIGFP experience, it was actually quite important to have a role that had... You know, some meaning and to be sitting there investing for uh, the Australian taxpayer actually had you know a fair degree of meaning 
uh, also personally uh, was closer to you know to family and friends in New Zealand, which also helped. And I think the role was one where you could bring everything together. You could look at the the macro, the markets, the politics, and think about what that meant for the portfolio. So it seemed like the culmination of all the things that had come before. So uh, you know, almost an ideal type of uh, role and environment. And at the time, the macro political backdrop was uh, quite intriguing, as you as you will recall, uh, 2009. And the future fund itself was quite small in terms of staff numbers. And a lot of focus was on you know, getting invested. Um, and that became um, a main emphasis. You know, how much risk should we have? Where should we put it? What can we get? And the opportunities were there uh, in those days. So it was really more about the, the capacity of the organization to be able to implement those investment opportunities. In some ways, it's almost the flip side of AIG because there you were with the positions on and then you got hit when for not having liquidity, whereas... At the Future Fund, you had the liquidity because you've been funded by the government, although there was a decent whack of Telstra shares that I think you were stuck with for some time. So you had the liquidity and you also had the, the spreads that had blown out because of the crisis. So lots of opportunities and lots of money to deploy. Well, that's true, but some of that was also uh, some good decision-making. Um, early on, the, um, the aim of the Future Fund had been to, to take the equity exposure up to around 70% or so. Um, but in 2007, people at the fund just thought that didn't really make sense, um, you know, given the background risks and given the, um, the rewards. So the, the build of risk in the portfolio was, was halted. So the fund went into the financial crisis with an equity exposure of around 25-26%. So it did have the ability to invest when the markets fell. But of course, it does take some courage to actually uh, make those investments when um, when there's blood on the streets, so to speak. Sure. Was there a bit of pressure politically to get invested? Was there pushback about you know, why are you sitting on all this cash? Well, I didn't see um, you know the discussions in you know late two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, but certainly in two thousand and nine, there was a lot of debate. You know, when the market started rallying uh, about how best to get that exposure, um, which is what you'd expect. That's right. It is, it is tough to hold your nerve uh, when, when the buying is the cheapest. So our very first podcast guest was Professor Keith Ambakshia, and he's a, a big advocate of pension funds managing assets in-house. Uh, the Canadian funds that he does a lot of work with do have very large in-house teams. And during our podcast conversation, Keith mentioned that the Future Fund, which uh, typically outsources investment management to fund managers, could be sacrificing as much as 1% a year, which is a big number in a low return environment, by not managing money in-house. So as somebody who worked with the Future Fund in a very senior strategy role, what's Keith missing? <laughs> I think it depends very much on the organization and where you're getting those excess returns and what you're paying uh, the managers. I very much doubt that the future fund could generate an extra 100 basis points by having everything uh, insourced. A number of considerations here. You, know, you, you can look at other organizations uh, and you might want to compare Harvard versus Yale. Uh, Yale's typically outsourced. Uh, Harvard had done a lot of insourcing but is now you know, changing. 
Uh, clearly, the people at Harvard don't think there's 100, 100 basis points extra in terms of doing things internally. And I've also looked at this as a context from um, uh, you know, the future fund versus, say, New Zealand Super, where New Zealand Super then sources more and actually pays lower fees. Uh, when I look at the, the excess returns uh, generated over liquid proxies, they're about the same. Uh, it's just that the models are you know, somewhat different. One lower fee, more in sourcing, one higher fee, outsourcing. I think what's really important is you don't pay fees on stuff that's easy to do. Um, so if it's just generic beta, if it's uh, alternative beta, you shouldn't be paying very much. And if you're paying those fees, you're doing it because someone is providing some skill or insight. Um, also, there are some things which, um, you know, if you were to insource, um, let's say, uh, you know, some of the you know, derivative overlays and so on, you would need to, to build uh, a much different infrastructure. You would need to have, you know, 24-hour you know, trading capabilities and so on. Uh, I, I would think that if you were to insource things like, uh, you know, private equity and venture, and again, the derivatives trading, you, you run the risk of um, changing the incentive structures and the harmony within the organization. Uh, You'd have to pay people differently, and that could that could uh, adversely affect the culture. And that was very much the experience with Harvard, wasn't it? A lot of people complaining about how much the internal team got paid. Well, in the end, you know, if the internal team gets paid a lot, and as an organisation you're not doing well with respect to your overall objectives, it just doesn't add up. Okay. Uh, I think it's much more important to to achieve the overall objectives. Okay. So it sounds like it's really horses for courses when it comes to things like. In sourcing versus outsourcing. Absolutely. Okay. So moving on to another question relating to the future fund, we see that Peter Costello, the former Australian treasurer and current chair of the future fund's board of governors, has made comments in the media suggesting that Australians would be better off if their superannuation was managed by the future fund. What do you think? Well, I think Peter's making those comments, you know, from from a personal perspective, and of course it's quite understandable if you look at it uh, historically, you know, the Future Fund has done pretty well. I, I think um, you know, it's important to think about um, what might happen in the future in terms of you know, if the Future Fund were to be you know, managing those funds. You know, I think the first thing that comes out, of course, is scale. Um, could the Future Fund generate the same sorts of returns if it were to be you know, a couple of trillion? Uh, I, I really don't think it it could, uh, you know, given the current model that it has, given the opportunity, because the larger you get, the more like the market you become. I think also, you know, this is something that the Productivity Commission has been thinking about, and, you know, it considered whether the Future Fund you know, could uh, potentially do this, but thought that there were, uh, I guess, incentive reasons not to do that. I think, you know, one of the, the points they highlighted was that, you know, if an organisation like the Future Fund were to do it and it performed poorly, uh, there could be an implicit obligation for the, the government or the taxpayer you know, to, to bail um, you know, the fund out or to bail the beneficiaries out. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of open. I mean, I think you know, ultimately you want uh, an arrangement which is best you know, for, for the end beneficiaries. Um, and, but if you know, funds were to be managed by the future fund, I think um, you know, the structures would have to be somewhat different. The portfolio would be different. Uh, you wouldn't want to uh, have um, probably the same board uh, looking after the existing future fund versus you know, some sort of default arrangement. Um, but I think this debate will 
will continue, um, particularly you know, given the Productivity Commission report and given the Royal Commission and, and, and so on. One of the things I note that happens a lot with this debate is there's uh, often the media compares the raw returns of future fund and the superannuation fund, and what they forget is that the future fund doesn't pay tax, whereas the super fund's returns will often have accrued tax subtracted from them. So um, something to be careful of in the debate is making sure that you're making apples for apples comparison. Or even when those adjustments are made, um, you know, the future fund still stacks up pretty well. The Australian media loves to report about the future fund. A particular favourite of the media seems to be the level of cash that the fund holds. There's always these apocalyptic, the future fund is sitting on 30% cash, this means the market is going to crash headlines. What's the real story? Well, I think it's. I think the cash is a bit lower than that now. But I think the real story is that um, you should look at the overall risk within the portfolio. So there are times when the future fund's portfolio probably would have similar risk characteristics to a, a 60 equity, 40 bond portfolio, even though it's got a lot of cash. Uh, and people aren't going to talk about a 60-40 uh, portfolio and say that's you know, not necessarily risky enough because you're being very defensive. Um, so I think, you know, first thing, look at the overall risk. You know, the future fund uh, would have a lot of exposures which are riskier than average. Uh, so some of the private equity exposures, venture, um, the debt in the portfolio is uh, higher risk than you know, traditional fixed income. So you, the cash can be there at times to, to offset higher risks in other parts of the portfolio. Likewise, um, you know, there was a, a feeling that um, by having uh, higher risk assets and cash, having that barbell, you have a portfolio that's more flexible than would be the case if it was just like average risk uh, assets. Um, and focus was also attached to um, the option value of that cash or the option value associated with uh, portfolio flexibility. Uh, so I wouldn't focus too much just on that on that cash number. And I guess also in an environment where bond yields are still relatively low, um, you know, cash isn't that far away from, you know, from a bond. I think your comments there about uh, the option value of cash were really brought home by the Future Fund's early experience and not being fully invested and uh, having a low equity weight and having, having that cash on two in, during the 2009 period. So we can see why the fund really prizes that, that option value. Uh, Absolutely, but uh, of course it's very hard to time the markets and then you've got to have the right governance arrangements in place to, uh, to effectively use uh, that flexibility um, you know, at the right time. Okay. I think that's a good segue to talking more about the team and how you manage money at the Future Fund. And we mentioned earlier this idea of a whole-of-portfolio approach uh, managed by a single team. The Future Fund operates that way. Why did they make the decision to organize the fund in that manner? Why wouldn't it? Good question. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you've got a mandate. You know, it makes logical sense that everyone should be thinking on, you know, thinking about the, the mandate as a whole. Uh, and in the future funds context, you know, it's about maximizing return uh, while taking acceptable but not excessive risk. And there was a return benchmark associated with that maximized return. Why shouldn't everyone be thinking about that? Everyone will make a different contribution to it, um, but ultimately that's how you're going to be judged. Uh, 
Um, so it just made more sense, I think, for us in terms of alignment uh, to, to take that holistic approach. And of course, the traditional approach is, is a bit different where you have um, you know, the SEL legation team, which you know, would have been my team, um, coming up with a portfolio and then handing out you know, buckets of money and having those various buckets be filled by people without um, reference to the, the overall portfolio outcomes. Um, but to, to us, it just made more sense to, to focus on, on the whole. Uh, I think you know, there, there are lots of benefits associated with that. Um, you know, all the different groups you know, think about you know, the whole of the portfolio. Uh, there's much more idea sharing. Uh, you're also looking at the, um, the best marginal um, you know, opportunity. And when you're thinking about the portfolio as a whole and the risk, you're using a common framework uh, you know, to do it. Lots of advantages. Okay. So it sounds like it worked a treat, but were there any disadvantages? <laughs> there are disadvantages. Um, uh, and when I think about this, I think, well, not that many organizations have done this. So why is that? There must be good reasons. Um, and I think the first reason is it's actually, it's actually quite hard. Uh, it's hard to do that because you do rely on a lot of collaboration and a lot of information sharing. And as you get larger, that becomes more and more difficult. But even if you're not large, uh, I think one of the, um, the key challenges is that people think differently. And you know, I carried out a little experiment. Um, I uh, sent a survey to uh, my colleagues across the, the various asset teams and also my team in strategy and asked them to choose what portfolio they would choose if they had the choice. So what ideal portfolio would they, would they have? And it turned out that everyone including strategy, which had responsibility for derivative overlays, everyone chose more of what they did. And you, know, you can say, well, okay, they're all biased. Uh, maybe they are, but also they knew more about those particular asset classes. Um, but yeah, it's hard to get away from the fact that people think differently. Big picture people uh, probably don't think about the nuances of some of the bottom-up implications. And if you're a property person, you're probably going to be thinking a bit differently than if you're a private equity person or a debt person. It's just the way things are. And you have to uh, recognize that and have some way for integrating uh, a portfolio where people think differently. So it, it might be helpful if you could give us an example of how a decision was made using this total portfolio approach, perhaps an investment that was made. Sort of how did it begin and what are the stages that it went through and how does it work in well, practice? Well, I won't talk about a specific um, investment, but... Um, I think the, the, the thing that is most powerful is when someone comes up with an idea uh, and it gets presented to the, you know, the investment committee or it gets debated, and it could be the case that it's something that is particularly attractive at whole portfolio level. So let's say it's um, a relatively liquid opportunity. It'll be compared with a, a liquid proxy and um, you know, the expected outcomes could be you know, quite good compared with that proxy. But if they're particularly good, um, what might happen, and, uh, and, and Dave Neal was very good at this, he said, well, why don't we double it? Why are we taking an exposure of this size? You know, at portfolio level, that doesn't mean much. You know, we, should, we should actually scale it up. Um, so the, I think the, the, the total portfolio approach nudged people in the direction of taking more meaningful uh, positions. So if you're running a particular asset class team, you might not feel comfortable having a lopsided portfolio. Uh, but when you're thinking about it as holder portfolio, you will feel more comfortable with that. And we definitely did do that on quite a few occasions. 
Likewise, the as I mentioned before, the debt portfolio doesn't look like a normal debt portfolio. It's riskier portfolio. Uh, the private equity portfolio doesn't look like a normal private equity portfolio. It doesn't have the you know the large buyout that that an average private equity portfolio would have. Um, the alternatives portfolio, which is a hedge fund hedge fund portfolio, again is quite different from the average. And these things are structured the way they are uh, because they all fit into an integrated whole of portfolio approach. It's interesting to hear you talk about what happens when you integrate the various parts together and how the individual pieces may not make sense on their own, but they make sense as, in terms of what they contribute to the overall outcome. And I, I just can't help but contrast that to a lot of other investors out there where they review each asset class, say, on an annual basis, and they review the equity portfolio, the fixed income, and they look at it just as a standalone piece. And I think what ends up happening when you do that is you end up, in many cases, over-diversifying that piece because you're trying to manage the risk of that piece instead of trying to manage the risk of the the whole. I think you're right there. And the point there is really it's about fallacy of composition. You want to look at the, the overall effect rather than focusing on just the, the micro and the detail. Completely agree with that. Definitely. Definitely. And I think also the way that we report information can help. Um, one of the things that always used to frustrate me was when we had to report information that we, we had to give a lot of detail about individual managers or individual portfolios over short time periods. And I think if you spend more time looking at overall portfolios over longer time periods, that aligns much better with this sort of decision making. Agree. Okay. So how do you resource a whole of portfolio approach? What do you need in terms of people and systems? I think um, you know, it starts with um, you know, clarity on what your objectives are, you know, clarity on beliefs, um, because there has to be that alignment, clarity on the, the investment framework, uh, the risk framework, uh, so a common language and a common terminology and common purpose. Uh, so the culture uh, is very important. At the Future Fund, you know, it was quite you know, simple to describe you know, who we were or who we are. Um, you know, Australia's sovereign wealth fund investing you know, for the benefit of future generations. People can identify with that. Um, you know, likewise, there are you know, a few you know, summary statements that um, you know, characterize the culture. They've been revamped recently you know, to be things like uh, do the right thing, focus on what matters, you know, work together. Those are very simple things that people can identify with. So people can, can buy into those things. So, you know, I guess in the past, I really didn't pay that much attention to those sorts of things, but they do matter. Uh, you can get that alignment. Then I think when you're talking about common languages um, and framework, uh, we focus a lot on, I guess, key descriptors. So when we thought about risk, we didn't think of you know, a single number. We would think about things like the overall market exposure, we'd think about you know, different measures of, of downside risk, uh, we would think about liquidity and flexibility, but those uh, concepts were shared across all the, you know, the asset class team, so people thought about those things. Um, people would be involved in, um, I guess, the whole process. Uh, you know, we would start uh, by thinking about the state of the world. 
We would think about the macro. We would think about possible scenarios. Uh, we developed an internal um, model to, to take those macro outcomes uh, and translate them into portfolio outcomes. So for all the scenarios, we had different um, uh, you know, portfolio outcomes. We would assign likelihoods to those outcomes. Uh, we would use judgment um, because you cannot construct a single portfolio that's robust to all those possible outcomes. Uh, now, of course, that didn't really um, you know, mean that we're just looking at um, you know, historical stuff or full stuff. There's a lot of judgment exercised. You're looking at you know, the past. You're looking at, uh, at what you think might happen in the future. Uh, you're not making, um, you know, let's say, a call on what the bond equity correlation is going to be you know, in the future. You're looking at what will happen to those two exposures given different scenarios. And there will be times when the correlation will be you know, positive. There will be times when the correlation will be negative. Uh, so I find it intriguing or amusing that people will say, ah, oh, the, the correlation switched. Uh, I would go back and say, well, what's causing it? You know, is, is growth stronger than expected? If growth stronger than expected, then you know, equities will do well and bonds won't. If inflation is higher than expected, then uh, both bonds and equities will do badly. It depends on you know, the drivers, you know, overall supply and demand. So, so we would you know, look at the macro, look at the scenarios, look at the portfolio outcomes, discuss uh, those portfolio outcomes given those scenarios and our views and position accordingly. Okay, so you're, you're integrating views across the portfolio, considering the macro, coming up with scenarios to create this total whole of portfolio strategy. What does that mean for the way that you work with investment consultants and fund managers? Because so much of the funds management industry is oriented around the silos that we we all know. So you've obviously taken this different approach and, and most managers manage to these silos or asset class benchmarks. How does it translate in terms of the managers that you use and how you invest with them? Well, before that, I mean, I should probably talk about you know what you know, the different asset class teams. Because I've only mentioned the like the top-down bit of it. Sure. The bottom-up bit of it, of course, is that all the teams are going out there and looking at opportunities that they think will um, be positive for the portfolio. So they've got all their, their managers. They're looking at uh, how they can access you know, those different exposures. They're maintaining you know, uh, various relationships. Uh, they're bringing forward uh, proposals you know, to, to investment committee. There's a pipeline of, of things that they think they can do. Uh, we're comparing opportunities across you know, different sectors. So you know, that top-down, bottom-up, all that gets integrated. And there's a, a vision for you know, how you know, the portfolio will evolve you know, given those opportunities. So when it comes to um, you know, the managers, uh, you know, it will be, well, how can we find something which is you know, accretive to the portfolio in terms of you know, the return or risk. Um, in the case of, let's say, you know, hedge funds, um, we wanted to construct an overall portfolio that didn't have uh, any strong factor exposures. It didn't want it to you know, have uh, you know, a lot of equity beta or be strongly exposed to you know to, to other factors. Certainly, if we we're paying you know fees, you know for, for those sorts of things, but we wanted it to uh, to have a, a payoff profile that could help. 
if um, you know, we had one of those bad you know, portfolio outcomes. You know, when it comes to the consultants, we you know, you know, did most of our work internally, but we would use uh, consultants uh, to reality check you know, the, the work that we did, you know, to test it. Um, and, and we also did that with some of our, some of our managers. Uh, we would ask them from time to time to you know, cast their eye over our assumptions. Uh, so really it was there to keep us honest. Okay. So we know that the, the Future Fund is such a large and important investment institution in Australia. So it's only natural that a lot of institutional investors look to it for ideas and inspiration. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on whether or not other institutions should be doing this. Because uh, after all, the Future Fund is it's a semi-government organisation. It's tax-exempt. It manages over $140 billion. It has a large team of expert staff. It has access to deal flow and co-investment projects that other funds may not. Uh, it has a large number of unlisted assets that it purchased previously, probably at more attractive valuations. And it doesn't have to deal with competitive pressures or redemptions, at least not yet. Eventually, the government may come calling for some money, although it won't be a warlord in, in our case. Um, so what can other institutions learn from the Future Fund? And what things carry a, a don't-try-this-at-home label? I think um, you know, the, the biggest lessons come from, from culture, um, you know, clear mandate, uh, alignment. You know, there are some things that the Future Fund has that others won't have. That is that you know, people want to talk to you. you know, you're large enough, um, hopefully respected enough, um, that people will call on you. Uh, so you get great access. Um, so that's one thing that, that stands out that people won't always, always have. The fact that the, um, the staff is, um, you know, is, is really good, um, but also sufficiently large, means that um, it's capable of doing uh, you know, a decent amount of due diligence. My former colleagues in the private equity team, for instance, would uh, be forever traveling. And they'd be traveling not because they like traveling so much, but because they wanted to attend the various advisory committee meetings um, with their managers. And that was great because it gave them insight into what was happening. It also uh, gave them more clarity on the various portfolio companies. And that information got fed back to, um, you know, to other members of the investment team. Now, not everyone's going to be in a position to be able to do that. Uh, likewise, um, you know, the size of the staff and capabilities meant that you know, we could do our own modeling, build our own frameworks. Um, not everyone's going to be in a position to do that. So a lot, a lot of natural advantages. Likewise, when it comes to scale, uh, we're big enough to matter to, um, to a lot of managers, which mean, and, and it's long-term capital, uh, which is attractive you know, to, to a lot of managers. So we're an attractive uh, partner. That means that it's more likely that we can get involved in co-investment. It also means it's more likely that we can get access to, to harder to access managers. So a lot of advantages. There are things that um, work against an organization like the Future Fund, and that also comes to scale. Um, while there are advantages with scale because you're large enough to matter to people and you can get access, um, the flip side is that sometimes you're just too large to take advantage um, and
And if I think about the Australian context, you know, Australian small caps, um, there may be a lot of value to be had there, but the future fund's just too large to um, to really um, be able to to extract you know value from 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 that sector. Okay, so it's interesting to hear you talk about the two sides of scale, how it works to your advantage in certain areas such as you know, large unlisted investments, but may work against you in terms of other things like stock picking. No, no, absolutely. And uh, it's also quite amusing because it's uh, forever a question, what is the best size? What is the right size uh, in terms of assets under management or in terms of staff? And um, you know, when it comes to, let's say, staffing in the organisation, a lot of debate around um, the size, uh, because once you get up above, you know, let's say, you know, one fifty people or more, um, it changes. You don't know everyone. Uh, you might be spread over different floors, uh, so the culture can potentially change. Uh, you just need to be alert to that. Um, with assets under management, um, it poses additional questions. Um, there may be uh, only uh, a certain number of managers that you really want to get access to, and those ex- those accessible managers may only have a certain amount of capacity. So you may not be able to scale the business model once you become larger. Um, but likewise, you know, as I mentioned before, if you are sufficiently large, you can become more attractive you know, to, to other participants, and perhaps there are other things you could do that you might not have been able to do otherwise. But in the limit, of course, if you get very large, uh, you look much more like the market. So it sounds like what institutions should be doing is coming up with a framework to sort of assess where they're at and what is attractive for them given their size and resources. I think that's right. Um, but I think, you know, of course, they need to be very clear about what what their overall objectives are. I think that's a, a good point. It all goes back to the objectives. And as you pointed out, the... Future Fund essentially has one objective, whereas um, most institutions such as superannuation funds have somewhat conflicted objectives because they do compete versus other funds. So while they often create products around a a longer-term CPI plus objective, there's always this eye on what peers are doing and how they rank in a survey. So it's uh, I think that that is a an underappreciated um, topic of just how beneficial it is to to have a single clear objective rather than dividing your attention across multiple objectives. Oh, I think that's true, uh, but of course, you know, the future fund, the agency, you know, manages a number of different portfolios. So the nation building funds, there's um, disability care, uh, the medical research future fund. So those you know, funds may have. Slightly different objectives, but all of those objectives are clear. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, so we've we've taken a walk down memory lane talking about your career up until this point, and we mentioned at the outset that you left the Future Fund in April of this year. Where to now for Stephen Gilmore? Oh, look, I'll stay in the industry. Um, uh, I will be... Uh, in a role where I can influence your portfolio outcomes and it will likely be at scale. Okay. Well, we look forward to seeing where you end up. So we usually ask our guests guests a couple of concluding questions and they are, 
what are three practical steps that investors can take to improve their investment decision making? Well, these things are common sense, I think. You know, first you should be clear about what you're trying to achieve. Uh, I think second, be very clear about what your risk appetite is. And third, be realistic. Uh, and I mentioned that last one because you know quite often people will look to the past and say, ah, your average returns have been X. Um, but with real interest rates as low as they are now, and risk premium where they are, prospective returns in the future are going to be lower. And I think people just need to be realistic. So I think those three things are the, the things to focus on, uh, but it's really common sense. That last one about being realistic reminds me about a uh, an article that Warren Buffett wrote many years ago where he talks about the problem of the the triple crown winning horse. He said, if somebody was to tell you that this horse won the triple crown, you'd think it's an amazing horse. But if they also told you that the horse was now almost 20 years old, well, you probably wouldn't bet on it, even though um, it had won the triple crown. So you need to handicap history uh, based on what you know of the circumstances. And as you point out, a lot of people make the mistake of just taking a historical record and not handicapping it for what they know about the present. So what are some pieces of research or books or ideas that you think our listeners might find interesting? These are things that uh, I guess um, people have probably read, but one I go back to from time to time uh, is a piece written by Howard Marks, Risk Revisited Again. Uh, excellent piece. Um, it's always good to just, just remind yourself um, that risk isn't a single number, um, but Howard Marks is extremely good. Uh, at uh, the narrative. Um, He's got a new book coming out later <laughs> this year, which I'm keenly awaiting. <laughs> I would also um, highlight um, Super Forecasting by uh, Tedlock and Gardner. Uh, yeah, they talk about you know foxes and hedgehogs and big ideas and um, really just looking at the data and recalibrating. Um, but I think that's quite important uh, in terms of you know, being a reality check. Um, and we talked a bit about AIG. A lot of you know, words have been penned on what happened there. Um, but I think the best book that I've seen uh, is one by uh, Roddy Boyd uh, called Fatal Risk. Uh, he did his homework, had good sources, um, and it's a, it's a pretty good summary of, uh, of what went on. Uh, told well. Okay. Well, thanks for the tips. I'll have to look up that, uh, that last one to add to my library. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for spending the time to chat with us about your very interesting and varied career, and we wish you all the best for the future. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.